When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. If you want to live the most fulfilled life with your family, you need your family team to show up for you. Your wife needs to be on your team. Your kids need to be on your team. Your parents need to be on your team. Your friends need to be on your team. Because if that team is not there, they're going to demotivate you. They're going to tell you you're doing the wrong thing. They're not going to support you. This can't be it. There has to be more. Wait, am I crazy? No. If you're yearning for more and working hard to make your dreams a reality, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Dreamcatchers. It's the only show committed to helping you self-actualize and then transcend, leaving you with the legacy you've always desired. Listen in on conversations with successful philanthropists, entrepreneurs, and founders every week as we connect with them for inspiration, education, and direction. Your host, Jerome Myers, is here to help you exit the matrix and transform into a leader of your own revolution. The question is, do you believe your dreams should be real? Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Dreamcatchers podcast. I'm your host, Jerome. You're in for a treat today. I don't know where Ajit is, but I met him in Southern California. And so former Mind Valley. He's got an amazing story. I've never seen him without a hat, ladies and gentlemen. And <laughs> when you uh, look, just get your pen and your pad ready because we've got Ajit Nawalka on the show with us today. Brother, thank you so much for stepping away from the engagement that you were committed to, to jump on with me, to have this conversation. And, you know, I like to open the show by saying you had an exit. Yeah, absolutely. Did everything change when you saw, did you get a check or did you get a wire? Wire. <laughs> you got a wire. So when you opened up the bank account, you saw the money in there. Did life change? Well, any exit, and, and I've had many exits, actually. I've sold a few companies in, in, my, in my life at this point. And I think every exit is, there is a season that happens before the exit actually happens. The exit, the day of exit is, is not just here, suddenly it was bestowed upon you and here was a bunch of money. That's just not how it works. Usually exit is premised by one of two common factors. One is you're out of love of your company. The thing that you are building, you're not in love with it anymore. And you look for the next best person to take the mission, vision, product forward. You just know that you're not that person. So you're kind of out of love in some way or you're stressed about life or something happens in life. So that's category one. Category two is you always built it to sell, which means you always knew that there will be a point that you will, you will pass the baton, you will give it to a better leader, you will, you will send it away. In either of scenarios, it's a slow build towards sale. So when you get the wire, when you get the check, firstly, you kind of expect it. It's not something that you're like, oh, it's suddenly something has appeared. So your biological response is 
very certain. You know how we get, if, if suddenly I sent you $10,000 right now, Jerome, you might go, wow, I got $10,000. And you'll be like, whether that to your biological response is going to be like, holy cow, I, I anchor that moment. But if you knew you were getting paid $10,000 for a thing that you did, it's not going to create that biological response for you, especially if you've done it again and again and again. And so it's kind of same with exits. Exits are the big check, the big wire is not when you feel the big emotion. I think the big emotion you feel is when you have that decision made for yourself that you're going to sell the company. I think that's the first big emotion that you feel. The second big emotion that you feel, which is mostly of relief, is when you're actually able to sell the company. And that's more a paper being signed or a handshake agreement where you know now that the company will be sold. And then by the time you receive the check or the wire, you you already, it, one of two things again, is either you are settled into it and you know it's going to be a big, long pause in life, or you are not settled into it and you're already working on your next project. So exits are exits are interesting. They, they don't create the response that people think that they would have. When the money hits the bank, it means nothing because your life is already preset in some other frame. So you said you've sold multiple companies. What was your first exposure to someone selling a business? My first ever company that I sold was, I'm trying to think which was the first one. The first one was a shipping company, shipping and printing, printing company that I built in India. And that was the first one that we sold. That was built maybe 12, 10, 12 years ago. I don't remember. It's been a while. That was a small enterprise. I was doing it in while I was transitioning between careers and I just started this company in partnership with another company and just sold it back to that company. And that, that was pretty straightforward. It was built, it was one of those cases it was built to be sold. It was not built to be built. It was built to be sold. It wasn't my passion. It was just a good gap in the market that I saw at the time. And I was entrepreneurial enough to go try. And so I built it and then I sold it. Yeah. So that was the first one that I sold. So did you, how'd you know that it could be sold though? Like most people that I, I've been around, they haven't even thought of the concept of being able to sell a business. They think, oh, I can sell this thing, but to sell the enterprise that makes this thing is kind of beyond their realm of understanding or experience. So what I've seen, and there tends to be new founders that tend to think like that, is new founders, and, and I was fortunate, I've, I'm very good at getting mentored and getting coached. I, I go into a conversation, always going, what do I not know? What can I learn from this person? So, so I've always been very curious, and this is why I got blessed early on and thinking about these things slightly differently. So a new founder or a new creator would always think they have to create something out of nothing, right? Yeah. I have an idea, right? And And sometimes that's the way to do it. But I would say, I would argue about 90, 95% of businesses that get successful are not, I have an idea that does not make any sense in my current reality. 90, 95% of businesses that become successful are something that you are already doing or something that you were already seeing again and again and again. So I was in an ecosystem where it was required for people and that there was still the time where we were shipping DVDs and CDs and workbooks to people. They were not digital yet. All right. So it's, it's a it's a good time ago that, that we used to do that. It was starting to dwindle, but still it was there. Right. And the biggest problem in U.S. at the time or companies that were operating in the U.S. that did DVD, CD, that kind of programs that now are available digitally mostly 
were that they had these very one-off companies that did really poor quality prints, but yeah. that they were like on demand. They were like, oh, you would order it and they would make like 10 copies for you, 100 copies for you. It was really cheap and cheap in the sense like the quality of it was really cheap. It was not high quality stuff and it was just not good. <laughs> it was just terrible, right? And so, and that was the only way a small, let's say if you were doing DVD programs, that was the only way you could get it done because otherwise you have to big, place a large order of 5,000, 10,000. That's not every entrepreneur can afford that, especially when they are testing a new product in the market, which is an information product. So what I was like, okay, I, I, I grew up in India. That's where I, I'm from. And I said, I know people in India that can do this for half the cost and twice the quality, right? Or maybe not half the cost, maybe 70% of the cost, but twice the quality, right? And so I was like, oh, I know people in India who can do this. I knew a few companies who were trying to do that stuff, which is to send information, DVDs and CDs and all of that stuff, but not the cheap quality. They were sick and tired of sending something that was just because they were charging a good amount of money. They were like, I charge 500 bucks for this. And when some, something like this shows up at their door, I know the content's worth it. But we had also learned that the packaging also matters. Like, what is the experience of the person when they open the package, when they receive the package? Do, do they feel like they made a good investment? Or do they feel like they bought something off the shelf in, you know, a dollar store or whatever? So, so that was good in a way. And I, because I was in the industry, I was playing the game. I knew there was a gap and I just built a company for the gap. And so I knew that the company that wants to print this stuff all the time eventually would want to buy it because they, if they scale, which is of course an assumption, but if they scale, they will want to print more. Why would they want to pay me a piece of something that they can just own? Because it's not like I have an actual physical printing unit that I own a brick and mortar thing. It's a, it's a deal. It's an agreement. And you could just simply buy me out of the agreement. So I knew they would buy me out one day or they will keep paying me a percentage, which also didn't hurt. But I kind of knew that it's better for them that they buy me out, which is also an interesting thing when you build businesses. I think it, it's a curious perspective to always have to ask, how is it that the other person wins? Like, how is it that my business partner wins? How is it that my client wins? How is it that if I'm in relationship with someone, that person wins? Because when your perspective is on the lens of the other person, your ego starts to fade away and you create a product that somebody loves, right? Otherwise, you build a product that you love. Nothing wrong with that. And some great products have been created because some person was obsessed with that product. But a lot of products that get successful really quickly were created because the client loved the product. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's easier to build products that other people love because you can actually ask them. You can actually sit with them. You can actually make something and say, what do you think about it? When you are trying to do it, we have our own mental chatter, our own narrative. We kind of discount ourselves. Confidence goes for a stars. You found the problems. All of them show up. Right. So it's always a good idea. In my perspective, it's a good idea to start asking the question, how does the person win? How does my business partner win? How does my client win, how does a business relationship win? And when you build for that, it's easy to sell it to them or to anybody, really. Yeah, because you're meeting the need of the person that you are creating the product for. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I think that was one of the things I struggled with early on in entrepreneurship is like, no, that's not what I want. What I want doesn't matter, right? What the client, what the customer wants is what matters. Yeah. How did you... What does matter for, for the founder is that are they driven to create it? Like that does matter. Because if you're not driven, if you're bored out of it or you feel like eh, I'm like, you know, not alignment with it, then you're not going to still build a good product. So it does matter. Your, your motivation, your motive to take action, your inspiration to take action, your desire to create something wonderful, all of that matters. But the product and what the product should be is, is a focus towards client, is a, mm -hmm. is a focus towards business partners if you're building in partnership with someone. And if your client is the business partner, which is you're going to sell it to the business partner. So do you think? 
Because it sounds like you've created a lot of different products. Do you feel like you pick the product first or do you pick the person that you're the, the avatar or the client first? I pick the problem first. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's, it's, about, it's all about the problem. What is the problem in the marketplace? What's the problem that you can identify as early as possible? Uh, and 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 start creating a solution or start producing a solution for that problem early as possible. See, nobody wants to buy a product, and nobody's going to just solve the problem. and say, yeah. "I am your potential client." Everybody's a client. If they're human, if they buy things, they are a client. Like for somebody, so everybody's a client, and nobody cares about your product. They care about their problems. So if you can solve a problem, if you can incite somebody to go. That is exactly what my problem is. And I can feel that you have the solution. Now you can build a product that does that. Whatever incites that feeling is the perfect product to create. But, but it's really mostly about the problem that you are solving. Yeah. We, we like to ask people, what problem are you solving? When they're confused and feel like they don't have clarity on what's supposed to happen next. It's like, well, if you know what problem you're solving, then you can figure out the next step. It's kind of like playing solitary. So on your last exit, was that the biggest exit you had so far? No, so I, I well, was my last exit, my biggest exit, possibly. Again, there's very different structured deals that we do sometimes. So it's not about cash. Sometimes it's about equity. Sometimes it's about, it's about the new relationship we are starting. So did my, did my last exit create the biggest opportunity for me? Absolutely. And how do you measure that opportunity? Is it potential upside in the future or net cash to you? Like, how do you... Because you think about things in a way that most people don't. When, when I talk to most founders, their focus is on how much money went in their bank. And then if they got a second bite of the apple, how much are their stocks worth? But you're, you're not thinking about it in that context. So help ex enlighten us, expand our, our experience here. <laughs> so, so, and it's, I think, how you look at life, right? So, so I, I have a perspective towards life that I'm not playing the game of how can I make $100 million or $50 million or $10 million? That's not my game. My game is to say, I'm going to live until whatever time I'm going to live. If, if I was to believe the biohackers of today, somebody my age is supposed to live till 100 or 110 at least, right? So that means I have almost about 60 years more to go. And I don't want to live a life where I make a shit ton of money and then I'm sitting and just spending it on shopping. I, I'm not motivated by that. It doesn't drive, it doesn't do anything for me. I'm motivated to create. I'm motivated to build. I like doing what I do. I only do things that I like doing. If I don't, I shut the business down, even if it's going to make me lose a bunch of money. I don't give a damn. I'm doing for the experience of life. And because I do it for the experience of life, I'm almost always asking the question, how can we play a bigger, better game? Which means that sometimes I may trade off, and I've done this, where I have had business partners where it wasn't fun, so I gave away my equity, like $0. I don't need to get paid. And those businesses were a few million dollars in revenue. So I could have made at least six-figure exit. But I was like, no, I, I don't care about this. And I would just give it away because it wouldn't fit my desire of how I want to live my life, right? And I'm not saying it's the right way to do it. It's the wrong way to do it. I think the curiosity must be what's the way you want to live your life. Because you can make a lot of money. It, it, making money is actually not difficult and not as difficult as people make it to be. It, making money is actually significantly easier than that. But what is difficult to do is to live the life in the greatest alignment of yourself, which is why a lot of rich people report to be unhappy, lonely, and all of that stuff. You know, a lot of people that are very successful say it's lonely at top and all of those things, which is 
all narratives that are created by not designing a life, by simply designing part of life, which is money, right? Or part of life that is feeling, fueling your ego by saying you were successful or you have a large company and so on and so forth. Whatever the thing is that is fueling you, if you're not curious about it, if you're not interested in figuring it out, you will always fall for the most immediate trap that you have for life. And that will be mostly designed by your surrounding. So if you live in a neighborhood or where, where most people are poor, you will tend to not grow out of that neighborhood. If you go to a seminar where everybody just talks about money all the time, you will only talk about money. If you go to a seminar where people talk about money and relationships, you will have a more stable relationship, right? So it's, it's, a, it's, an, it's a dance. It's an understanding that either you can respond to the world as it feeds you, or you can create what you want to create. I believe I want to create. And it does change over time, and it does change based on what I feel is my next desire in life but it's never influenced by what surrounding I'm in. I create the surrounding I'm in because I know where I am going, right? So it's, it's, a, if, it's, a, it's an uncommon way to live life, but I think it's a more interesting way to live life. It also reduces any fear and anxiety that you might have, especially for founders and entrepreneurs, it's a big thing, right? You, you can be very fearful because you put a bunch of money in something. You could be very anxious because let's say the results are not where you wanted them to be. You yeah. may feel fear of loss, fear of a business going away and all of that, which reduces if you're doing it for fun, if you're doing it because it's fun, because you're doing something, because it drives you. It dri and fun, not only in the sense of haha fun, but fun in the sense of you like doing it. You like waking up to it. You like chasing it. You like creating through it and so forth. When you do all of that, then, then you're not so fearful because you're still having fun. The idea was never to become incredibly rich. The idea was to be comfortable. And I'm very comfortable. But the idea, once that is achieved, everything is for fun and joy and, and a purpose of life. And more you live like that, in my opinion, easier it is to build companies, sell companies, rebuild companies, and always be creating things that are in alignment with you. And I think that's just a different way to live life. Was, was there ever a point where you, you were chasing money or focused on getting rich or some of the other cliches? Like I, I think about the American dream and how it's been focused on you know, making as much money as possible and having the house and the two luxury cars and the kids and the wife. And I think when most people get those things, they start asking, well, what was it all for? And is this really it? Mm -hmm. So I think that's a season that is required in people's life in some way to come to the place where, where I was talking about, where you live a meaningful, purposeful life. I, I grew up in India. And in India, we, at least the setup that I lived in was where we had 23 people sharing the same space because oh, wow. my parents, grandparents, my cousins, my grandparent cousins, like everybody lived in the same house. And that meant that basically entire family had one room to themselves. So me, my dad, my mom, and my elder brother all shared the same space. And when you share the same space, of course, you always feel like there is constraints and there's limitations and limitations of possibilities. and as I would share space, sometimes I would feel so stuck. I would feel so, so less than because I would feel like I, I can't even get a moment to myself. And we've all, all had those moments in our life where like, you know, I could just, if I could just get those five more minutes, right? It happens because of situation like I am in. It could happen because there's something that's happening that's really, really hard for you. We've all had moments where we feel so, so, so full of things around us that we want a pause, we want a break, right? So that, that kind of was where I was in my early childhood and that motivated me 
to get out of that situation. But my dreams are not big. I had really small dreams. My small dreams were, I want to be able to buy a small house so I can move my parents into it because we lived in this big house with 23 other people. So I was like, I want to have my parents live comfortably. I wanted to be comfortable myself, which means I didn't want to look at, and my, my, my goal at that time was never look at the right-hand side of the menu, right? So I should never have to decide if I can afford to eat this or not. Right? And I was in a place where I had to look at the right-hand side of the menu and order the cheapest item. And we've all seen that, some version of experience of that, right? And so I lived that life. And when I was living that life, yes, I was motivated by money to a certain extent. But at the same point in time, I was still motivated by life. So there is, there is an inherent understanding that I've always had that I don't want to be rich and unhappy. I met too many of them. And I met too many of them even when I was young. They were rich. They were unhappy. They were rich and they were unhappy. And most of the time they were unhappy because they only worked on being rich. They never really tried to live a happy, joyous life. So I I was motivated differently always, which is why I also took a lot more risks than people would at my age. I changed a lot more careers. I tried a lot more things. I failed more businesses, started more businesses, did more partnerships. All of that happened much, much more in a very short span of, of time than most people, mostly because I was motivated differently. That's wild. But it's based on the experience, right? So if you walked in and you saw rich people were always happy, you probably just said, oh, well, being rich solves my problem. But that's not the problem you were solving for. You were optimizing for being happy and actually being comfortable. Rich is maybe a byproduct of that. A lot of people want to unlock their ultimate potential, but lack the strategy, support and stamina necessary to achieve their major goals. They often try to overcome these challenges by trying to do it on their own, causing frustration, fatigue, and eventually failure. We have developed a model for a center life, aka the red pill, to help them bolster their beliefs, gain clarity on their path to success, and provide accountability as they take action on their goals. When they take the red pill, they rapidly accelerate attainment of their goals and begin to experience a life of significance and impact. Want to find out more? Hop over to JeromeMyers.co. Now, let's get back to the episode. So when you were doing a keynote at a conference I was at, and you you, you connected with me, and I felt like you were talking to me, you were telling the room the story, and you said before we started recording that you remember it well. Can we get a little piece of that and kind of the the punchline for that, because I think it would be great for the listeners to get that because they probably weren't in the room for this one. Absolutely. So as a founder, any founder that is listening to it, one of the challenges that you would have right now or will have eventually once you have team members is that you will realize that it kind of sucks. <laughs> it kind of sucks sometimes to work with people because a lot of times they don't understand what you're saying. A lot of times they don't follow through as strongly as you want them to. They are not they align with you, but not really. They're not able to do the job as well as you do. They're not able to really move the company forward if you stepped away, or so you feel, right? And so I was at a stage in my life where I was, I was working for a company called Mind Valley. It's a big personal development company. If you're into meditation or any kind of personal growth, you might have heard the name. And, and so I was working for this company called Mind Valley, and, and I was in a senior position because I was really good at what I did. You know, I, I, I really can learn things really fast. And so I was really good at whatever task I would take. And I would take different roles. Like I would become the CTO, CMO, like project manager, launch manager. I did all the roles in the company in like six short years, right? And my dream was to be the CEO of the company. I said, I want to be 
the CEO of this company. I love the company. I love the mission. I love what they do in the world. I love the clients. And I didn't like the people. And I didn't like the people enough that people didn't like me back. Right. So I was one of those people that people were like, oh, he's an asshole. Right. And, and it was pretty evident because that's how our sometimes our meetings would sound like. Even if the words were not used in those sense, it was kind of like, you know, I would get the look, I would get the stare, I'll get the, oh, fuck, he again, you know, that kind of thing. Sorry, I don't know if I can swear. It's okay. Okay, cool. Yes. So I would get that. And, and I was like, okay, so there is something that I'm doing wrong. And it was a lot that I was doing wrong. And that was mostly because internally what we do as founders and CEOs or people who are in leadership positions is we feel working with people is a pain in the ass. Right. We think only if I could have robots do this. Right. Mm -hmm. The challenge with that narrative is firstly, robots cannot do everything. Even if you would like to believe so, it's not true. It is human. Even AI. <laughs> well, it cannot. Like it's it's a big fear I know right now, but it's it's not. It's it's gonna change the paradigm of how we work, but it doesn't take away what humans do. So what had happened at the time was I was I was ha I had this big desire, I had this big meaning drive of saying I want to be the CEO. It was like one of those things where I was like, this will give me what I wanted to get for myself, a full life, right? This is what a full life looks like. I have, I was 30 at the time. So like at 31, I'll be CEO of a company that is freaking impossible for anybody that I know. Nobody has had this kind of track and this would be it. You know, like super, it was like my motivation to do everything at the time. And, you know, sometimes we have that drive, right? I'm sure all the founders can especially relate whether there's that number or there's that number of clients or number of podcast downloads, but you're like, if I have that, you, you know, that's going to be kapow. That's going to be the thing. That's going to be a big celebration. That's going to mean that I've, I'm there, right? Some version of that happens for all founders once they are chasing something, right? This was my chase at the time. Like if I become the CEO, Kapow, that's, I made it. I made it. I had a 31-year-old CEO, amazing, from India with no real degree, you know, like it, with all the background that I have and so forth. I was like, this is amazing if I could get that. And I was close because I was in the leadership team anyway, right? So I was like, oh, I'm just one step away. And it wasn't one step. I was thousand steps away. I was not thousand, but at least a hundred steps away because the team was a hundred people. And they wouldn't want me to become the CEO because I was a terrible person to everyone. And that's when I... I, as I was talking to people and I had a coach at the time and, and the coach told me, well, if you become the CEO of this company, if you do become the CEO of this company, why do you think you're going to have a good time when everybody hates you? <laughs> what makes you feel that you will enjoy doing what you do if everybody that you do it with, or most people that you do it with, don't even like doing it with you? And why should you even get that role? Why do you think the person who owns the company vision will give you this role if people don't even want to work with you. Like there is no, you may think you're an extraordinary performer, but that's not what the job of a CEO is. There's not a job of a founder is. The job of a founder CEO is to build the right team and build a great team. The greater your team, the easier is the job, the, e the better is the build, right? So as I heard that, it landed for me because I was like, holy cow, I have been building a career of a specialist. I'm really good at what I do. I can pick whatever thing I have to. And yes, because I'm really good at it, I can get the title, the job, you know, or whatever. I can get the results. I can prove my results. But I will never scale it because a specialist cannot scale. A specialist is a specialist, which means they will do that job forever in their life, but they'll be best in the world at it. Great. Absolutely. That's what you want for your career. But if you want to be a leader, if you want to build a company, if you want to sell your company, if you want to grow your company, you can't do that as a specialist. You got to be a leader. And that got me started into understanding 
that if I want to live a more meaningful life overall, everything around me is run by a team. Mm. Think about it. Not only your work. If you want to live the most fulfilled life with your family, you need your family team to show up for you. Your wife needs to be on your team. Your kids need to be on your team. Your parents need to be on your team. Your friends need to be on your team. Because if that team is not there, they're going to demotivate you. They're going to tell you you're doing the wrong thing. They're not going to support you. They're going to be like, why do you keep doing the same stupid thing again and again? Now, let's change that narrative. That's happening for someone that is listening to this podcast right now. If that is something that's happening for you. Let's change that narrative. What if the same people that are telling you right now you can't do it, they start telling you, you will do it, and I'm here to back you with whatever fuck happens next. Doesn't that change your motivation in everyday action? It does. Everything is a team. If you start thinking about it like that, you suddenly go, people are not my problem. People are my superpower. People are not my problem. People are my superpower. And once you realize that, you start to lean into the idea of what gets people excited, right? Once you understand what gets people excited, now you're starting to build teams. Now you can build a life absolutely of your dreams in probably 10 times less time than what you are about to do right now. So if it's going to take you 10 years to build your dream life, it's going to take one now. If you could build a team, because not everybody is chasing the same chase that you are chasing. Wow. People aren't my problem. They're my superpower. You know, it's funny, as you were telling the story, I was thinking about early on in my real estate investing journey when I walked upstairs and my partner, my woman was sitting in the bed and there were papers all over the bed. I was like, what are you doing? And she, earlier that week, she saw me handwriting names on envelopes and stuffing letters in them. And she came and got the list while I was away. And she was handwriting the names on envelopes and stuffing them so I could send them out to help create deal flow. And it was at that moment that I realized, like, I can't fail. Like somebody mm -hmm. else who actually believes in the mission. And that actually became the superpower because, I mean, you know, I went a year without any income and after I left corporate America and so on. And so, I mean, that that really resonates for me. So you've been super focused on you haven't I don't think you've said the word yet, but fulfillment. Mm -hmm. Right. Where did that come from? Because most people, again, they, they get stuck at money. Right. They get stuck at financial freedom. They think once they have financial freedom, then they've arrived. But my private clients, when they show up, they're like, what next? What now? How'd you figure out that fulfillment was the game, purpose, meaning? So it happens in stages for everyone. It's, it's, it's hard to get to the stage of understanding that fulfillment is a bigger driver than anything else that you would think in life. Again, it's, it's a lot to do with conditioning. It's a lot to do with human beings have a fundamental need of needing to be in power and to have certainty in their life. Those are two drivers there are shadow drivers, if you, if you may. If you would do, if you look at anything that you do in your life, and if you really closely observe it, you're always chasing some sense of certainty, or you're chasing some sense of power, some sense of power on someone else, or on yourself, or on society, or, or whatever else, right? Those are the two fundamental drivers. It's, it's a little uncomfortable to sit with it, because we think we are bigger than that, but everything boils down to due to shadow desires. At least our shadow desires are those two, right? So when that happens, if you are looking for certainty and power, what's the easiest path in the modern society to get certainty and power? Money. Money. And that drives us to thinking, if I have money, I have everything. And that's just not true. Like I said, there are shadow desires. They're not our actual human desires. Our actual human desires are more 
connection, are more love, are more contribution. And when you really understand that, when you feel the sense of that joy, you can let go of your shattered desires. You can operate out of them. You don't have to operate in them. So what happens is when you don't have any money, you lean into your shattered desires because they're easily accessible. They're always available, right? It's easy. It's always there. Close your eyes. The first thought would be, how can I make more money? But it's been ingrained in you. You have learned. It's a learned habit. It's a designed habit. And it is always there in your vessel as a human being. You know, we have the good and the bad. It's not, it's not, and it helps us. The bad also helps us. It's not, it's not hurtful. It is hurtful if we give it too much power. So, so what happens is our default falls into certainty and power. And when default falls into certainty and power, we start operating from a place of let's make more money because it's easy. It's easy to access. Now, there's a point in our lives, if you have certainty already done, if you have some sense of power in your future because you have a little bit of money, you have the opportunity to stay in the shadow, which a lot of people do, and that's just what they do. And you have the opportunity to ask, is that it? Or what next? Like your clients ask you, right? The reason they ask you that is because they have the certainty and power. Right. Mm-hmm. So they've already given into that shadow and they have created something out of it. Good for them. Nothing wrong with it. But if you don't ask that question, you become this endless chase of certainty and power. Right. And it becomes more and more of a chase of power. Right. Because certainty at, at some point you do feel certain, but you don't feel the power because mm. there's always a bigger dog in the fight. Right. So you feel like, oh, that person is bigger than me. So I must get more power. Right. So, yes, you can tap into it and you can become incredibly wealthy. But the question always would stay for me. And that's why it's a personal thing. It's not something that's globally applicable unless it's present to you. Is, is that what you want? Do you want to have the same narrative that you've heard so many people say is lonely at the top? Why do you think it's lonely at the top? Because you're trying to overpower everyone instead of understanding anyone. That's why it gets lonely at the top. It's not because it's actually lonely at the top. It's actually not lonely at all at the top. It's actually super fun. And there's a lot of people there and they all want to hang out. They have so much time in their hand. They want to hang out a lot more than people who are not at the top. Because guess what happens when you get on the top? You have too much money. You want to go to retreats. You want to go to a vacation. You want to do this. You want to do that. What are you going to do with that money? That's what you do. That's why you have yachts and private planes and whatever things, right? So it's not lonely at the top. You make it lonely at the top. Does it make sense? It makes complete sense. I, I just think you're shaking the paradigm for people who are listening to it because they've been taught so many other things. And this is the first time on the show that we talked about the shadows, right? And I, I, I don't know that many people have been exposed to the concept. And so do you believe that the shadow desires are just money or power and certainty? Or is there more shadow desires? Um, inherently, there are certainty and money, certainty and power, sorry. And they may show up differently. So for example, you can say, well, but what about my addiction? Let's say. Somebody might say, I have an addiction of some sort, right? Yeah. Well, addiction, if you really break it down, is a chase of power or a chase of certainty, depending on what addiction we are talking about, right? Even if you're addicted to something that's, say, alcohol, let's say, right? There's a certain outcome that you get every single time you drink every single night. You're addicted to that certainty. You're not so addicted to alcohol. You're addicted to the gap that you feel, right? So it's, it's, it boils down to certainty and power eventually, if you really break it down, and there might be different paths to get there, at least in my experience, in my discovery, yeah, yeah. everything falls down to either certainty or power. Wow. I didn't see us going there today, Ajit, but this is phenomenal, <laughs> man. So last two questions for you. The first one, and it's one I ask all our guests because I know that the biggest and the best run it in great packs. And so 
we want to continue to grow this show and get it, get the right people on the show. And so is there anybody you can think of who should be a guest on here? Uh, one of my friends, I think, just had an exit or is about to have an exit. His name is Andrew Horn. I don't know if he's already exited or he's about to exit. But yeah, absolutely. Andrew would be great. Okay. Well, I'll circle back with you to get that. And then the final question I like, love to ask the guests is, what's the one thing you want the listeners to take away from this episode? Because we've covered a ton of ground today. <laughs> I think I think the biggest discovery for me and the most important discovery for me as a person, as a founder, as a CEO, as a creator, as somebody who's exited has, has just been do things for the love of it. Don't do things for the money of it. Money, I know it sounds very cliche, money will follow, money will follow, but I have no other way to express it that how much money does follow anything that is done with passion and purpose and meaning. Because once you do that, it's it's just easy. And and you're not concerned about it. You're not fearful about it. It just happens. And and money but that money does and is very easy once you understand it, once you understand the flow of it. And and it always follows anyone that is doing something meaningful. So so that's what I would say is remember that it's about doing meaningful work, not about, you know, getting some money out of some people. Like, don't approach business like that. Yeah. It's interesting because you say that. I, I think so many people when they're exiting have all these folks around them that are just focused on the business and figuring out how to extract more value from the business. And they forget the person. Mm-hmm. Like the person is left behind to deal with whatever they're going to do with. And so that's why we started focusing on the founder's exit paradox and helping people who have these eight-figure exits to actually figure out what's next instead of going down in what most people feel is like this valley or this pit. And sometimes they don't make it back out. So, man, that that was spot on. Ajit, thank you so much for jumping on with us. And to the listeners, if you want to find out about the six struggles of every exiting founder, hop over to the exitparadox.com and grab our free four-step, I guess it's like a four or six-page white paper that we put together. Until the next time, your dreams should be real. We'll talk soon. Thank you for joining the tribe today. We would love to hear from you. Please don't forget to rate, like, and share. Perhaps someone you know could benefit from what we've discussed. Until the next time, remember that your dreams should be real.